following message was given by Raymond Goodlett on Sunday, December 15th at Redemption Hill Church. For more information about the church, visit us online at www.redemptionhill.com. Good morning. My name is Raymond. For those who don't know me, I'm one of the pastors here. It's always great to be here with you like this. It is because of my love for you that we are trying to get you back into your seat because th- this is long. Now, you never start that way, right? This, but this is, the, the text is long. We're going to be in John chapter 11 this morning, and we're going to read most of that chapter. So verses 1 through 44. And then after we do that, we're just going to highlight a few things that I think Jesus wants to bring home for us this morning that I, that I hope will be really meaningful for us as we, as we look to follow him with our whole hearts. So let me pray as we get into this morning's message. This is, this is our Advent series, as you know, week three of four, all right? So we've been taking some time to remember what Advent is all about and to, to look back and to celebrate the coming of Jesus or the advent of Jesus into the world. It's also a time where Christians look forward with expectancy and anticipation. We look forward to the second coming of Jesus. And we've been taking this series and, and the weeks in this series to actually Look at some ways that when Jesus came, it was actually unexpected. He, he spoke, he, he did things that people could never see coming, that were unexpected. And, and this is another one of those examples here in John chapter 11. So let me pray for our time. We'll read that text. And as I read through that text for us, I'll make some comments along the way. And when we get on the other side of that, we'll focus on the few things I think he wants to highlight. So Lord, we thank you again this morning for the privilege of coming together to hear your word as a church, and uh, we, we get to do that in relative freedom. Uh, like the men we were looking at there on, on the picture, they, they, don't, they don't get to do that. They, they come anyway, and they, they serve you with joy, but every, every single morning for them, the, the reality of the threat of death is present, and, and they know at any time, because they follow you, they, they could meet you very soon. Lord, so we want to keep that in mind and not take that for granted the fact that we can meet like this um, in relative freedom to hear you speak. But we do pray that you would speak to our hearts and, and you would have your effect on us. Your word would actually cause us to have greater faith in you, greater love for you, and display greater obedience to you so that in everything you would be glorified and we would be filled with joy. And we ask that in your name, Jesus. And everybody said... Amen. John chapter 11, verse 1. Now, a certain man was ill, Lazarus of Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. And even though John has not gotten to this place in the writing of his gospel narrative yet, he'll come to it in chapter 12, the very next chapter, he wants to distinguish this Mary from other Marys that you would read about in the gospels. So he says in verse 2, It was Mary who anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was ill. So the sisters sent to him, saying, Lord, he whom you love is ill. But when Jesus heard it, he said, this illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. Now, when I was doing college ministry, I can't tell you how many college students would bring this up and say, well, there you go, the skeptics. Jesus got it wrong. See, he couldn't predict the future accurately. It did lead to death. Well, of course, that's not what's going on here. Jesus is not making a statement here 
about all of the intermediate effects or consequences that will ensue upon this illness and be part of the picture. He's not making a statement here about the picture per se that will ensue. He's making a statement about the purpose of the illness. And he says very clearly here that even though this will pass through death and that will be part of the picture, he says the purpose of this illness, as far as God has determined it and sees it, is for the glory of God, that the Son of God would be glorified through it. Verse 5, now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place that he was. Now I'm going to come back to this because this bothered me to no end. He loved them. So he stayed where he was. Verse 7, then after he said this, or after this rather, he said to the disciples, let us go to Judea again. And the disciples said to him, Rabbi, the Jews were just now seeking to stone you, and are you going there again? At this point, I imagine Jesus saying, oh, oh, that's right, I forgot. They were trying to stone me. Thank you so much for reminding me that there might be some danger ahead. No, of course, Jesus was fully aware of this. And so he answers their concern for him in that Jesus kind of way. And he says in verse 9, Are there not 12 hours in the day? If anyone walks in the day, he does not stumble because he sees the light of this world. But if anyone walks in the night, he stumbles because the light is not in him. In other words, Jesus is saying, Look, if I, if I want to go somewhere and there could be some obstacle or something in my path, I'm going to go during the daytime. I know when I ought to do that. And as I go in the daytime, I'll have plenty of light available to me. I'll be able to see what's in front of me. And if I need to, I can navigate my way around all that stuff. And in the same way Jesus is saying here, look, when I say we're going back to Judea, it's not that I'm unaware of the dangers we're facing. I'm fully aware of them. I have enough light, so to speak, to see exactly what's ahead and to navigate my way through that. If it's the right time for me to go, I know it's the right time for me to go. And when I say get up, we're going to Jerusalem, that's what I mean. And so let's go. I'm, listen, it's not because I'm unaware of the danger. I can see it fully, clearly, and I'm making a decision to go in that direction anyway. And so that's what he says to them. And then in verse 11, after saying these things, he said to them, Our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I go to awaken him. Now, if you're a mother of a very young child, young baby here, you know you never wake somebody. You don't wake up the baby. You wake him, you take him, right? You don't wake up the baby. It's almost like the disciples are treating Jesus this way. Well, why would you wake him up? He'll get better if he sleeps. Now, I, of course, verse 12, the disciples said this to him, and Jesus had spoken of his death in verse 13. But they thought he meant taking rest and sleep. So then Jesus got very explicit with them in verse 14. No Lazarus has died, and for your sake, I'm glad that I was not there so that you may believe, but let us go to him. You get the sense here that because of Jesus' love for Lazarus, if he had been there, he, he just wouldn't have been able to help himself. He would have prevented this thing from happening, or he would have raised him so quickly that it, while it's still very impressive, might have just seemed like one of those miracles he's already done. So he said, I'm glad for your sake I wasn't there, so that you will believe to the degree and to the extent that I, I want and need you to believe. And so he continues, and he says there in verse, or Thomas says in verse 16, Thomas called the twin, he said to his fellow disciples, let us also go that we may die with him. Now I, I confess to you, I don't know 
what Thomas is saying here. I don't know if this is a display of bravery and loyalty. Hey, Jesus is going into danger. Let's follow him. It's going to be okay. If it's our time, it's our time. But let's all go and die with him. Maybe that's what he's doing. Or he's being sarcastic here. And, and maybe I'm just projecting some of my own personality on Thomas. Um, but it could be Thomas saying, great, Lazarus is dead. They tried to stone you. You want to walk into certain death. Why don't we all just go die? Right? Which one of those? I don't know. Sort of a choose-your-own-adventure at this point. You, you figure out what you, you want to believe about that. It really isn't that important for the story. It's what I call one of those speed bump verses. You kind of hit it boom, and just keep going. All right? So verse 17. Now when Jesus came, he found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb four days. Now that is important for our story. And I'll, I'll read this part of the new manners and customs of the Bible for you. Because that's a great resource, by the way. The new manners and customs of the Bible. If you want to, to, to understand things that are cultural, and, and you know, as 21st century Westerners, we're, we're not the sort of culture that the, the Bible came out of. It, you guys do understand that. Like we're, we're not the primary culture that all this stuff took place in. This is a Middle Eastern culture, and there are some differences, some things that are harder for us to understand as we read on the surface. But... Here's what you need to know. When it says that Lazarus has been in the tomb four days, according to rabbinical thought at the time, the spirit wanders about the sepulcher or the grave for three days seeking an opportunity to return into the body. That was the prevalent belief of the day. Day one, day two, day three, the spirit of the departed person is kind of hovering there waiting for an opportunity to, to sort of reunite with the body. So if you're familiar with the princess bride, Lazarus was just mostly dead on the first three days. You, you get that idea, right? If you're not familiar with that, then that is the first order of business for you before this decade expires. Go see that movie, The Princess Bride. Don't let 2020 catch you unaware. But Lazarus, or this was the thought of the day, people are mostly dead for the first three days, but then once you get to the fourth day, the body actually begins to go through decomposition, and they're all the way dead, and Miracle Max cannot help you, Jesus cannot help you. That was the thought. Okay, so go back to our text here now in verse 18, you, you understand how people are seeing this, and then it tells us where Mary and Martha and all of them were. They were in Bethany. Bethany was near Jerusalem about two miles away from Jerusalem. And many of the Jews had come to Martha and Mary to console them concerning their brother. So when Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went and met him, but Mary remained seated in the house. Now, you might be tempted to believe that Mary is remaining seated in the house primarily because she's upset and she just doesn't want to go and see Jesus. She's disappointed. That might not be what's going on here. In fact, it's most likely not what's going on. This was typical during the week of bereavement and the days of mourning in this culture. Someone would remain in the house in order to receive all the guests who were coming to grieve with the family. And so that person would take on the burden of hospitality for the guests who were arriving. Doesn't that make it interesting, if you know this family then, that Martha went out to see Jesus and Mary stayed back to take care of the hospitality? Isn't that interesting? That's most likely what's happening in this story but again, I don't know that 100%, um, but, but anyway, I thought that was interesting. So pick it back up in verse 41. Martha goes out and meets Jesus, and she says to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. And she's probably right. Jesus sort of alluded to that as well. 
But even now, I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. And Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. It's day four. Martha responds with some very good theology. Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. See, see, we reformed types, if you even understand what that means, we love that, don't we? It's so emotionally safe. I can remain guarded, not vulnerable, and I can just hide behind my theology. And I'm not even saying that that's what Martha is doing here. I'm saying that that's what I do sometimes. I know, I, I mean, gone to seminary here, studied my eschatology, I know about the last things, he'll rise again in the last day. That's not incorrect, but Martha, that's not what I'm saying, Jesus would say to her. Verse 25, Jesus said to her, Martha, I, I, I don't know what you think is going to happen on that last day. I don't know what power you think is going to cause people to rise in the last day. You may, maybe you think this is some impersonal force, but that, that's not the case. No, I, I am the resurrection and the life. What, what do you think is going to cause people to rise in the last day? I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. In one sense, we, when we believe in Jesus, we never die. If we pass into death, into the next phase, we are absent from the body but present with the Lord and we live in ways we could never imagine. We live truly, eternally. We never die. And he says, Martha, do you believe this? I am here. I can do this right now. Why do we hide behind our theology at times? And listen, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a theology guy, and it's good, and we need it, and we grant, but, but why do we at times try to avoid Jesus by putting up a theological guard that keeps us from being vulnerable in his presence? Why do I do that? Why, why do we do that? I don't know if that's what Martha's doing, but it's possible, and I certainly know that that, that touches my own life at times. Verse 27, Martha responds to Jesus, Yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who is coming into the world. And when she had said this, she went and called her sister Mary, saying in private, The teacher is here and is calling for you. And when Mary heard that, she rose quickly and went to him. Now Jesus had not yet come into the village, but he was still in the place where Martha had met him. And when the Jews who were with her in the house, consoling her, saw Mary rise quickly and go out, they followed her, supposing that she was going to the tomb to weep there. Now when Mary came to where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet, saying to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. And when Jesus saw her weeping, and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit. And he was greatly troubled, and he said, Where have you laid him? And they said to him, Lord, come and see. Jesus wept. Now God goes out of his way right here to tell us by three descriptive terms 
about the deep emotional response of Jesus to the suffering of someone he loves. He was deeply moved. He was greatly troubled. He was found weeping. And this greatly moved is only used five times in the entire Bible, in the New Testament. It's twice right here in this passage, and the other three times appear twice in the Gospel of Mark, once in Matthew. In Mark 1 and Mark 14, um, in, in Mark 14, it's where Mary is actually pouring herself out and her perfume onto Jesus to prepare him for burial, and someone gets upset with her and says, this was wasted. They, they complained. That's the sense in which they were deeply moved. Um, in, in the other two places in Mark's gospel and Matthew's gospel, it's when Jesus does a miracle and sternly charges someone not to say anything about it. So this is not about a deep compassion, so to speak, if we allow those other cases in the New Testament to inform us. This means that Jesus is deeply stirred and agitated and concerned and and is saying, listen, I I am serious right now and I'm about to do something. Don't don't mess around. Where, where, Where is Lazarus? I'm about to do something about this right now. And he's preparing to do that. And so going back to our story, let's pick it up there. Uh, Jesus was deeply troubled. He said, where have you laid Lazarus? And he wept, verse 36. So the Jews said, see how he loved him. They look at Jesus crying. They say, look at, look at how he loved Lazarus. But there were others in verse 37 who said, could not he who opened the eyes of the blind also have kept this man from dying? Isn't it interesting how we can look at Jesus' response to someone who is going through one of the worst things they've ever been through? We can look at how he has even gathered others around to comfort and console them. And some of us will look at that and in that moment we will see evidence of Jesus' great love for that person or for us. And then at the same time we have others who will look at the very same set of circumstances and find only grounds to accuse Jesus of not doing enough. Isn't that interesting? And so the thing that determines that is not the circumstances, but it's the heart that looks upon those circumstances and decides one way or the other what they will come to believe about Jesus. Do you see the evidence of Jesus' love in your suffering or the ones who suffer around you in terms of his response? Or do you primarily see reasons to accuse Jesus of not doing enough? We see that here in this verse. Verse 38, then Jesus deeply moved again. I'm sure in part because he knows people are questioning his goodness and his love, and that's just not fair to Jesus at all, obviously. But deeply moved again, he came to the tomb. It was a cave, and a stone lay against it, and Jesus said, take away the stone. Now Martha, the sister of the dead man, said to him, Lord, by this time there will be an odor. I mean, it's day four. He has been in the tomb four days And Jesus said to her, did I not tell you that if you believed you would see the glory of God? So they took away the stone and Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. You want to note this is not the first time Jesus has spoken to his father about this. And you and I want to note this is probably not the first time we've heard this story. Probably not the first time Jesus has spoken to us through this story. But he's going to do it again anyway because we need to hear it. He says, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but I said this on account of the people standing around that they may believe that you sent me. And when he had said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. And it's a good thing Jesus was very specific saying Lazarus, because who knows who else would have taken the opportunity to try to come out here. 
No, just Lazarus this time, all right? Come out. And his hands and feet. The man who had died came out, his hands and feet bound with linen strips and his face wrapped with a cloth. And every movie I've ever seen about the Gospels gets this wrong. I was talking to Mark earlier this week about this. and Look at what the text says. Every movie I've ever seen, Lazarus comes out like this, almost like this, you know, like, what's up? This says he was bound. He came, he came out like this. <laughs> and somebody, please give me a hand here. And it's a good thing that we have administrators in the church because most people would just sit around and not do anything. And, and the, the administrators always have to tell us and clearly spell out what we need to do. So Jesus performs that role here. And at the end, he, he said to them, unbind him and let him go. Father, help us to focus just on a few things from this passage that will be of greatest value to us and help us to move in the direction of Christ's likeness. We ask that in your name, Jesus, and everybody said, amen. amen. We don't know how Mary and Martha knew where to find Jesus, but clearly they knew where he was. And so they sent a messenger to him. Now, it's interesting where, where Jesus was. We actually know where he was as well. Because if you look at John chapter 10, verse 40, it says that Jesus had gone to the place where John the Baptist had been baptizing in those early days, beyond the Jordan River. And John chapter 1, verse 28 tells us that that place is also known as Bethany, Bethany beyond the Jordan. Now, what you need to know for the layout of this story is that it's on a straight line distance, about 40 miles away from the Bethany that is near Jerusalem. All right, so the Bethany near Jerusalem is west of the Jordan River. You go up about 40 miles northeast, east of the Jordan River, and there's the other Bethany where Jesus and his disciples were. Forty miles away, at this time, if you're traveling on foot, is at least a two-day trip. And if you're moving quickly, you'll get it done in about two days. Now, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to say that to you because I'm going to give them an, uh, an average rate of 2.5 miles per hour on foot. Seems fair. Have you ever been on the treadmill at 2.5? You know what that feels like? That's miles per hour. All right, so a decent walk, you're carrying supplies, you've got some animals with you, you have to rest occasionally in order to keep going, and I'm going to give you eight hours a day of actually walking at 2.5 miles per hour. That's 20 miles per day, 40 mile distance, that's two days of travel, okay? So day one and day two of our story, the messengers are sent from Bethany near Jerusalem up to Bethany beyond the Jordan to find Jesus. They get there. And they tell Jesus what's going on, and Jesus clearly gives them the invitation the, the, or the impression that he got the message, but that he's not coming right now. Maybe he said something like, go, go and tell Mary and Martha, I'll be there soon. Now, this is not a Western culture. Now, I know something about this because my parents are from Jamaica. When we tell you we're coming soon, there's no telling what that means. <laughs> right? Right? We're coming soon. Heather used to, used to say when we were dating, you lied to me. You told me you were coming soon. And I'm like, and I'm here. That was three hours ago. I'm here now. You lied. No, I didn't lie. I'm, I'm just, I've got some of that Jamaican stuff on me. She is, I don't know how much she's learning to appreciate that stuff. Probably not very much. Anyway, so day one and day two, they go up, they find Jesus. Day three and day four, we're told that Jesus stays where he is. And no doubt the messenger took that time to come back down to Mary and Martha and to let them know the teacher is on his way. Hopefully he comes soon. By the time Jesus gets there, and he would have left on day five and six to travel down to Mary and Martha, 
day five and six of our story. By the time he gets there, in verse 17, we're told that Lazarus has been in the tomb four days. So Lazarus has been in the tomb, for, at the very least, on day three, four, five, and six. Are you with me? Four days in the tomb. He is not just mostly dead, he is all the way dead by the time Jesus shows up. Okay? And that becomes very important because now we're, we're left to wonder, why then did Jesus strategically delay his, his, appear, his appearing? Why did he do this? If he loved them, why did he do this? Well, go back with me to verses 5 and 6, and we have to see what God puts here for us. In, in John chapter 11, verse 5 and 6, we're told that Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So, because he loved them, therefore, and, and, and it is therefore. So, I, I looked this up in the Greek. It is the, the Greek word um, omega, epsilon, nu. It, it is there in the text. Therefore, because Jesus loved them, therefore he stayed where he was two days longer. Now you and I expect verse 6 to say, because Jesus loved them, he got up right away, gathered all his stuff, gathered his disciples, and went as fast as he could at much quicker rate than 2.5 miles per hour to Bethany so that he could get there while Lazarus was still just mostly dead. But that's not what we see. We're introduced here to a different and a higher kind of love that comes to us from Jesus. A love that causes him to stay where he was until things apparently got worse. This is not the love we want, but it is sometimes the love he gives. Why? Jesus knows exactly what he's doing. In verse 3, if you look at this with me again, the request comes out to Jesus and the, the sisters say to him, Lord, he whom you love is ill. Do you see that word love? That is the word phileo. Lord, we know you love phileo, that love of friendship, that familial kind of love, that emotional friendship love. We know you love Lazarus. Come quickly. We believe you will come quickly because you love, you phileo, Lazarus. Verse 5 says, now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So he stayed where he was. That is the word agape. There are four Greek words we translate into the English word love. Eros, storge, phileo, agape. This one in verse 5 is agape. The God-centered, straight out of heaven, pure, self-sacrificial, I will do what is most needed for you right now, no matter how you feel about it and no matter what you want, that kind of agape love. That is what we see that caused Jesus to stay where he was. And friends, I am telling you that Jesus often does the very same thing with us today. And we had better come to appreciate this about him and to trust him when he decides to strategically, at least on our timetable, strategically delay a response to our urgent request. Because Jesus is not changing. He will not love us less. And therefore we must understand more about him. 
Because this is the Jesus we have. This is how he loves us. And this love of Jesus, at times, at times, this love will cause Jesus to allow us to suffer. Even things like death or the grief that accompanies dying. He will allow us to go through this. And his love will not always prevent this kind of suffering. If his preventing this suffering would also prevent us from having an occasion to see his glory in the way that our souls most need. No matter how much you want to get rid of these realities, they will not disappear from your Bibles. They will not disappear from Jesus. They will not be removed from the kind of love he gives us. And you and I need to learn how to love the Jesus who actually is there. And stop trying to make him into the Jesus we want. He loves us in an agape sense. And that means that sometimes he will allow us to suffer in order that we would have the opportunity to see the glory of God. Let me, let me begin to, to land the plane. Do you know what Jesus is up to when he strategically delays his response to some of our most urgent requests? Well, first of all, number one, he's actually creating the conditions for our faith in him to grow. He's creating the conditions for our faith in him to grow. Verse 14 and 15. Lazarus has died, and I am glad for your sake I wasn't there, so that you may believe. Well, we already believe in you. Yes, but, but you believe I can only do this if he's mostly dead. I want your faith to grow. I want you to believe that I am the resurrection and the life, and it is never beyond hope if I'm on the scene. I want you to believe. He's creating the conditions for our faith in him to grow. A second thing he's doing, he is often patiently waiting as he brings others into the picture so that they can see his glory too. John chapter 11, verse 29 and 31. When Mary heard that Jesus had come, she rose quickly, she went to him, and when the Jews who were with her in the house consoling her saw her rise and go out quickly, they followed her. And they got to see the glory of the Lord in action in a way that could transform their souls, bring them to repentance and faith, deliver them for all eternity. And that is what Jesus had in mind. That is what he had planned. That is why he allowed this family to suffer. That is why he delayed his, his appearing. He's gathering those who would be the witnesses of his majesty and his glory that they might be transformed and healed in ways that we desperately need. John chapter 11, verse 41 and 42. Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew you always hear me, but I'm, I, I'm here now and I'm saying this because of those who need to hear it, who need to see it. For the people standing around, yeah? Ask me why you're here this morning. I don't know who you followed here. I don't know who you came to see or be with, be with but you're here to see Jesus. And you're here to see his glory. You might not have known that, but that is what's going on right now. He's, he's reaching into that heart. And I understand what this looks like in my life when Jesus brings people around at special moments. We're almost, six years ago, almost to the day, my dad died. It was December 17, 2013. And I was right there by his bedside. I am watching the clock. I was right there by his bedside. On his deathbed, there was my dad. And for the last two days of his life, he could not speak. He had a huge oxygen mask on his face, couldn't speak at all. We were all there gathered around him, his family and friends. And, and then this moment came. I don't even know if I've told you kids this. But this moment came, and my dad took off the oxygen mask, and he said, Jesus, 
Jesus, I believe. Jesus, save me. Jesus, forgive me. And with, with, with everything my dad could do in that moment of clarity that God provided him, he cried out to the Lord. And I took his hand and I said, Dad, don't worry, there's no work for you to do. He's already heard you. He's already gone to the cross. He's already been raised. There's no work for you to do. You don't have to earn this. You don't have to do anything. Just believe. Put your hand in his hand the same way you just put it in mine. Believe. And you will be with him for all eternity as you pass through this. Don't waste another minute of your life trying to earn your way into his presence. He will receive you and has already. Four hours later, my dad went to be with the Lord. He's with him now in all eternity, in eternal joy. My soul could not know greater joy as it concerns my dad. I prayed for him for 15 years. With no seeming response from the Lord, certainly no change that I was looking for. 15 long years. Jesus was gathering the crowd of people that needed to be there. At his bedside with me was my youngest brother, Ronald. He was not a Christian at the time. Two months after that happened, he called me and said, Ray, what are you doing this Sunday? I said, what are you talking about? I'm a pastor. What do you mean, what am I doing on Sunday? I'm going to be at church. What are you doing on Sunday? And he said, I'm actually going to my church up here in Maryland. I'm getting baptized. Can you come up here and baptize me? And I said, man, what, what happened? Tell me the story. And he, he told me. I couldn't believe it. It was real. I said, you better believe I'll be up there. If I got to go on foot at 2.5 miles per hour, I will be there. Hey, I'll be there soon. And don't hold your breath. I mean, I couldn't. Be, but, but listen, I, I, I am learning to trust Jesus. He knows what he's doing. I am learning to trust, increasingly so, that if his response seems delayed, according to the way that I observe things, then it's most likely because he, he loves me enough to let me see his glory in a way that might have been prevented if he fixed whatever it is I was asking him to fix at that moment. I'm learning to trust that. He's allowing me to see his glory. He's allowing us to see his glory. Let me, let me just kind of wrap up by speaking to those of us who are Christians, and then I'll move on to those who may be in the room who aren't Christians yet. If you are a Christian here this morning, let me ask you this. Where perhaps in your life are you in day one through five of this story? Maybe you feel a sense of urgency, helplessness, desperation. You've, you've cried out to the Lord. You've asked for help, but it appears that he is too slow in coming, and you're not even sure if he'll ever show up. What have you begun to believe about the Lord in this time? What have you begun to believe about his love and his care for you? What have you begun to believe about the role of prayer in our lives and what happens to those prayers when we send them up to God? Where, where maybe are you in day six of this story? Perhaps you're looking at something in your life, a pattern of sin that maybe you've been struggling with and you're trying to overcome. Perhaps a relationship that has gone sour. You once enjoyed it and now it's a source of grief in your life because of whatever has taken place. And it's gotten to the point where you believe it is beyond hope. Maybe the Lord has shown up in his own chosen way and you're starting to get the sense that he's here to do something about it now. You're starting to see that he's brought others around to help and they're expressing the fact that they'd like to help. But you're, you're just not sure if you want to go there. You're, you're almost convinced that maybe it's best to leave things as they are. Did you see that in verse 39? 
Jesus shows up and he looks at Martha and he says, remove the stone. Take away the stone. And she says, Lord, I, I don't, I don't want to do that. Man, we've got a lid on this thing. It's contained. It's in the past. That, that's a really painful chapter in our life. And I, Jesus, you've, you've just shown up right now. Yeah, I, I appreciate you, fellow Christian. You, you've shown up right now, and you're just starting to think through this and to deal with it, and you're expressing the fact that you want to help. But we've been going through this for a long time now. And I'd rather just keep that thing in the past, keep that lid on it. I don't want to, to dredge all that up and release the, I mean, the, just, it, the whole thing just stinks. I don't want to even release any of that into my life or anyone else's. Can we just leave it behind? But you get the sense that Jesus wants to revisit this and do something. He comes to Martha and, and like he comes to you and he probably says, I have a role for you to play in the healing I want to perform. Take away the stone. There's something for you to do. Well, if, you, if you're there and you feel like you've put an effective lid on, on something like this in your life and Jesus is now asking you to revisit it and be a part of his plan to fix things, to change things, I'm, I am praying that you will find the courage to move on to verse 40. Dare to believe that if we listen to Jesus, if we believe, we will see the glory of God. If we take a step in the direction of God's Holy Spirit moving us to do something about these things and to revisit places that maybe we think are just, this is just going to make matters worse. Why do I have to go through the spiritual equivalent here of corrective surgery if I can just limp my way through the rest of this life? Don't we end up in the same place? It's so easy to take that route. But that's, that is not often where Jesus leads us. In fact, maybe never. I, and I trust that the Holy Spirit is doing his work in your life and mine wherever he is doing that. If you're not a Christian here, let me ask you this. Did you, did you realize that this wasn't the last tomb we would see in the Gospel of John? There's, there's one more that's coming. And this time it will be Jesus who will find himself in that tomb. The angel would roll away the stone. Christ will emerge. Three days before that, he had been crucified. He took our place and he took unto himself the judgment that we deserve for our sins. He died offering up his perfect life to God as payment for and a sacrifice for our sins. And God raised him from the dead as proof positive that he accepted what Jesus did on our behalf. And now Jesus holds out to us the promise of forgiveness and eternal life. For everyone who turns from sin and the self-directed life and turns to Jesus in repentance and faith, he offers a full pardon for sin and a share in his eternal family and the eternal joy that belongs to his people. That same promise is held out to you this morning if you would receive Christ. In fact, in fact, what you experience at that point is a type of resurrection. Ephesians 2 tells us this. It says there in Ephesians 2, beginning in verse 1, As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins. When we are not joined with Jesus Christ, we, we live in a state of death, a kind of spiritual death. All the bananas, I use this illustration often, all the bananas in my house are dead bananas. I mean, we don't like to think of them that way, but they are dead in a very particular sense. They are dead because they have been separated from that tree which is their source of life. That's the kind of death that people live with. When we are separated from God, our source of life, we are spiritually dead and in desperate need 
of him to give us life that only he can give. That comes through faith in Jesus Christ. That is when the spiritual life that we need is, is brought to us. We cross from death to life when we turn to faith in Christ in that way. And that hope is held out for you this morning. If you walked in here this morning not believing in Jesus in the way that saves people. And so I remind you of that this morning. And I ask you to, to come to Christ. What would prevent you from doing so? Perhaps you say, I don't want to come to Christ. Well, fine. I, I've heard that before. He's, he's heard that before. That doesn't stop him from saving anybody. You, you don't want to come to Christ. All right. Well, I mean, there's lots of stuff I don't want to do. My wife will ask me all the time, you want to help me make the bed? You want to help me put away the dishes? No. No. I don't. <laughs> and then she asked me a slightly different question. Raymond, will you help me do these things? Yes is the right answer, man. Yes. Yes, I will. If your wife gets to the point where she's actually asking you for help with such menial tasks, yes is the correct answer. Consider that the Lord has spoken. <laughs> Got some amens there. Yes is the right answer. All right, so, so I, she has learned to ask me that question. Yes, I will help. I am willing to help. Listen, I'm not asking you this morning if you want to come to Christ. Will you come to him? Lord, help us as we, as we consider these things. Help us to see that you're putting before us the opportunity to come to faith in you. Help us, whether we are Christians this morning or not, help us as Christians to see that you are giving us opportunities for our faith in you to grow. You're gathering people who need an opportunity to see your glory. And if we walked in not being Christians yet, you're, you're giving us an opportunity to experience that resurrection of our soul that we desperately need, that we might come to life through faith in your son, Jesus Christ. We ask all these things in your name, Jesus. Amen. You've been listening to a message by Raymond Goodland, given at Redemption Hill Church in Richmond, Virginia. For more information on the church and to hear other messages, please visit us online at www.redemptionhill.com.